Listener Production. Just a warning. This episode references suicide and mental health trauma. Please listen with care. On this week's episode of Crime Insiders Forensics, we're talking about the brain. Now, this is one of my favourite topics in forensics, and it is something I've written about in fiction, but today I wanted to actually find out a lot more and dive deeper and talk to one of Australia's most renowned experts, Dr Linda Isles from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, who is a neuropathologist and an expert in the field of brain examinations, which are, surprisingly, best done post-mortem. I look at the brain from the outside and then I will do slices in a particular pattern. That's about 40-odd sections of brain to examine under the microscope. This is a fascinating chat and having Linda on is just amazing. We'll start off where we always do, Linda's first case as a forensic pathologist and why she remembers it so well. Gosh, my first criminal case. The first homicide case that I was involved with, I remember going to a scene just outside Melbourne, not far from where I live now. And I think the thing that I took away from that was it was the first time I'd been to a scene and it was um, it was almost like everything was this frozen moment in time in this sort of sort of family tragedy. It was a, it was a family, family violence related murder. And nothing quite prepares you for that, being in someone else's environment and it's really quite a surreal experience. Um, you get over that and you sort of get on and do the job you have a problem to solve. But, yeah, it just really took me aback. But um, the main aspect of our job is doing the case and doing it well so that when it comes to answering all the questions that need to be answered but also knowing that the work is going to be subject quite rightly to a lot of scrutiny, doing it all properly. So that's one element of it and that's what you focus on. But inevitably there's the human element of the case which sort of comes afterwards sometimes. And, and I do find particularly when I'm sitting to give evidence in court and you sit around and you and you see all these people who have an involvement with the case, whether they be family, friends, and and, and you just realise what a little bit part that you have in this in this story. And it's quite humbling, I think. Um, that's what I find anyway. So there's, you know, there's the, the technical bit, which, you know, you do to the best of your abilities, but there's always a kind of human bit as well. And I think that's something I'm always grateful for. It just, you know, it just opens my eyes to it's all sorts of people's experiences. We've all seen forensic pathologists in action, in fiction, in true crime documentaries. We know that they find the cause and manner of death. But what specifically is forensic neuropathology? Forensic neuropathology is, is really looking specifically at, at the brain and, and spinal cord, if you like. So it's sort of really focused in on one particular area, which, you know, in some cases might not be particularly relevant, but in other cases, particularly in trauma or um forms of natural disease which might masquerade as trauma, for example, it is actually sort of really important in both cause and manner of death in some cases. So you're now at the VIFM working in neuropathology and you have a particular interest in something that I'm very interested in as well, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a mouthful for most people, let alone trying to get their own brains around it. They may have heard the term with footballers and concussions, but I will leave it to you, please, to explain to us in lay terms, what is CTE? CTE and what it is, I guess, is is an evolving sort of concept in terms of what we understand and what produces CTE. But, you know, CTE is a neurodegenerative condition 
related to, you know, multiple um, repetitive head impacts. And I'm sure a lot of people have seen the press around it in the, well, NFL in the US to start off with um, and other contact sports, but also more recently um, here in relation to rugby league and AFL. And one of the difficulties with CTE is that currently it can really only be positively diagnosed after death. And we deal with, um, well, we have over 7,000 cases reported to the coroner here in Victoria um, every year. And we certainly don't autopsy 100% of cases anymore. In fact, it's more like 40% of cases that come to us. And the difficulty with the CTE being only an autopsy diagnosis currently, it's a lot of work to actually be able to diagnose it. Um, it requires... It requires an autopsy to start off with, but it also requires specialist brain examination, which is resource intense in lots of ways. But also besides that, because we don't need to autopsy every case anymore, we don't necessarily know what cohort we might be missing or not identifying. So it's more straightforward for us to be able to do the level of intense brain examination that you need to do to make this diagnosis when you're aware that somebody might, for example, have had a career as a professional athlete involving contact sports, but you might not know, for example, that that person's an amateur footballer and has been playing for 10 years and has had multiple head knocks and no one's really done anything about it. So what worries me in terms of CTE and its burden in the community is not necessarily the, the high-profile professional footballers. I'm not suggesting for a moment they're not important. But, you know, we have an idea that we need to look out for this in those cases. But it's not necessarily knowing um, that someone has had that background history, that that's what informs us to do this very comprehensive examination. As you know, they actually can be quite nonspecific. So there's memory problems, um, problems with concentration, headaches, certainly significant mood difficulties and changes in personality. And, you know, that's just the start. And But at the same time, those symptoms are relatively nonspecific. But when you place those symptomologies, you know, in, in a family, you know, it plays out with other family members as well in terms of kind of mood changes and behavioural changes. So um, in terms of someone's capacity to work, all of these things have, you know, significant implications, as you say, the ripple effect on to loved ones and and it can also cause that individual, because those behaviours, to become more isolated. And it really is a struggle. And, and I've been to a couple of events where I've heard Anita Frawley speak, um, describing what it was like f for their family, sort of knowing that something's wrong and, and just not sort of knowing what to do about it. And, and that's, a, you know, she gives a really good illustration of the impact of, and, and over a long period of time, of, of this sort of chronic sort of brain trauma, the, the, the impact that spreads throughout sort of the entire family and then that person's social circle. But it's the family. They're the ones who have to deal with it behind closed doors, and that's really hard. Can you tell us what that actually involves with a brain, the difference between examining the brain from the rest of the body looking for a, a cause of death? What's involved in a brain examination? A diagnosis of CTE, for example, we need to obviously remove the brain and Generally speaking, it's quite hard to do a thorough brain examination when the brain is just removed at that point in time because, as you probably know, Catherine, it's quite a soft um, organ and it doesn't lend itself to easy handling in that state. So we need to subject it to a period of fixation, so putting it in a, in a solution to make it firm so that we can actually examine it properly. We have a couple of, like I guess, levels of... Um, 
of examination. If, if, if for example, families would, um, they don't want to, for example, donate their brain to the Australian Sports Brain Bank, and, and that's perfectly fine, they would like it returned to the deceased body for burial, which is obviously what we prefer to do. We will find a compromise solution. So we'll put it in fixative solution for two or three days. I will do the examination and I will do the extensive sampling, which means I look at the brain from the outside and then I will do slices in a particular pattern. And then I will take multiple biopsies from the brain um, to examine under the microscope from proscribed areas of the brain in order to make this diagnosis. So that's about 40-odd sections of brain um, that need to be taken in order to, to facilitate this diagnosis. So in those cases, I will do that and then send that material up to the Australian Sports Brain Bank because I think it's important that there's a centre that has you know very specific expertise in looking at this condition. And then the brain can be returned to the deceased person's body and, and they can have their funerary processes and you know in a whole sense. Other families are happy to donate their brain to the brain bank and we will send we will fix the brain for a period of time and then we'll actually send it up to the brain bank in Sydney and that examination will be conducted up there. So because this is a difficult diagnosis to make, um, we try and have a couple of levels that so that we can find a level that each different family might have some comfort with. But there are still some families who've raised their concerns about CTE, but they just aren't happy with the concept of autopsy. They, it just doesn't sit well with them, and then we, we really can't go down that pathway. And some religious and faiths want very fast burials too, traditionally, and that can often conflict with um, particularly criminal investigations or if, if cause of death is unknown. Yeah, particularly when cause of death is unknown, but unfortunately deal with a large number of suicides every week um, here in Melbourne, in any large forensic institute you do. And, and now that we have the capacity for post-mortem CT imaging and, and in cases where the cause of death is very clear, the circumstances raise no concerns and we also have the comfort of having a full body CT. There is no need to autopsy this individual. And often that is clearly the family's preference that it doesn't go ahead. And quite rightly, they say their cause of death is obvious. The difficulty is with CTE that, you know, the symptoms of CTE are so nonspecific. And in terms of the link with CTE and behavioural disturbances and suicide, the difficulty for us is that unless we know in these people who've taken their own lives that they've potentially had that chronic exposure to trauma, then we don't know to look for it. We don't know unless we look. And looking is hard and looking is not something that that every family is happy for us to do. And we, we don't have the resources to do it in every single person who takes their own life either. So for the time being, we are certainly doing the best that we can do. And the Australian Sports Brain Bank is doing an amazing job. In terms of the, the burden in the community, I'm not sure it's completely understood. I know when I've written things and spoken out about CT in the past, I've been absolutely vilified that you just want to wrap everyone up in cotton wool and you just don't want anyone to have fun. And it's difficult, I think, for people to get their own minds around that a, an event in their child, a concussion, can actually lead to chronic deterioration. And this is the other thing about CTE. As I understand it, there's, like with dementia, there's a protein that's released. The tau protein? Yes, yeah, the tau protein. And that's the um, that's what we look for um, under the microscope with a special immunohistochemical staining for the tau protein. But I do know that 
through the, the cases that have been donated to the Australian Sports Brain Bank, certainly if there is CTE, they will um, diagnose it and grade it according to the current criteria. But there are a number of cases where they don't find it, but they actually find other neurodegenerative conditions, whether it be sort of Alzheimer's or other types of dementias. Um, so the Brain Bank isn't just looking for CTE. It is actually um, Professor Buckland's also sort of diagnosing a number of other different types of dementias in this cohort. Whether the data compared to the rest of the population um, indicates there's an increased incidence, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear on that. But certainly it's not shying away from um, not every problem that's created um, in footballers related to head knocks is necessarily CTE. I actually, I wrote a book, a fiction, one of my crime books was on CTE. And this is over 10 years ago now. And I said it in the NFL because I was concerned that Australians might think they recognise themselves. But the NFL was having massive issues when this was sort of starting to be picked up and more publicised. And there were lots of cases of violence, domestic violence. There was lots of addictive behaviour with drugs, alcohol and abuse, poor impulse control, uh, people behaving completely, not just changing mood and things, but completely out of character and lots of suicides and lots, well, disproportionate number of violent and homicidal behaviour towards family members from the general community and sexually inappropriate behaviour, sexual assaults as well. So you had gambling addictions. You had all of these things that were just ruining so many lives. And I remember starting to look because I thought, this can't be a good thing. That is it just celebrity? Is it just wealth? Is it privilege? What is it? But then you look at the NFL and the footballers have these helmets which weigh a ton, by the way. They, when you even pick one up, it's really heavy. But then they, I gather they found that people with the helmets on, compared to our rugby league players, the NFL players lead with the head and hit chests at incredible force. And so in some ways it was then thought that um, helmets weren't necessarily a great thing and protective. And I was joking with someone the other day that, Cricketers had boxes to protect their genitalia 100 years before they decided helmets were a good idea. What sort of sports are we looking at and potential head injuries that can be affected? Yeah, and I guess it, at this stage it seems to be that repetitive level of trauma, so not necessarily just one or two, although the effect of concussion is not insignificant even if you've if you've had one or two potentially. But it seems to be predominantly the repetitive nature of trauma. But... I know that the Brain Bank is looking at people from all sorts of sporting backgrounds. So, for example, um, jockeys. There's quite a lot, from what I understand, in um, hockey in North America. Ice hockey. Yes, yes, um, ice hockey. But we've had families with um, young men who've been involved in motocross and have had sort of falls and bits and pieces. And while sports, for example, like American football, which I guess is the prime example where, you know, the head's used as a weapon and it's not really what it's designed for, but... I think we do need to understand in the broader context, as I was getting back to, you know, really what, what is the extent of this condition in the community? And I do remember seeing a paper, people have criticised CTE for having a, a selection bias. So as I've mentioned to you, you know, we when we know that someone's had this potential exposure, we look for it. So there's been some criticism about CTE and, and selection bias, but um, this study demonstrated the incredibly high proportion of CTE in the brains of NFL players, ex-NFL players who donated their brains to a brain bank. And it was incredibly high. 
And the study demonstrated that even if every single one of those brain donations identified every single case of CTE, so there was none outside of the cohort that donated their brains, it still meant that the incidence was something like 5%. Now, if you think from an occupational health and safety point of view, I mean, that is massive. And that's really just scratching the surface. And I'm not at all suggesting that that's picked up all of them. Of course, it won't have. So even though there is an issue about selection bias, because that's the only way that we can look at these brains now, it shouldn't be dismissed because of that. It, it really is It really is a concern. But a lot of those studies have also looked at people who've only played football in high yes. school. <laughs> so it can also go back. As you were saying, you can't necessarily identify. One of the groups that I've been concerned about is vets, returned vets, who've been to Iraq and Afghanistan. And in the past in warfare, people haven't survived so many explosions. But with all the incendiary explosive devices, more soldiers are surviving. They've got helmets on, but they're not avoiding the concussions and the brain rattling around because of that massive explosion of energy. The brain's still confined in the skull. So we've also seen a lot of changes in behaviour and isolation and suicides in returning vets. Have you done any work with vets organisations or looking at expanding the brain bank? I know that um, Professor Buckland up in, in New South Wales, we, we've sort of had some conversations sort of around this because this has sort of been raised also in the context of um, domestic violence. So sort of repeated head traumas in that setting. And I know that we've uh, and I've sort of looked for it on a couple of occasions and not found it, but we still don't have a good sample of that population. And again, it comes down to the homicide cases, the high-profile cases, we subsequently find out that there's this history of repetitive trauma, inflicted trauma in the home setting. Um, but it's, again, it's the it's the suicides that we don't have any information about. We, we just, we really don't know. And, and in terms of the veterans, I'm not sure if the, the Brain Bank is looking at those as well, but I, I think that they should. Um, it's a matter of getting timely access to the material as well. So when someone dies, family, you know, what the affairs taken care of. And unless there's an awareness that this might be an issue, um, then the families aren't necessarily going to be receptive to that. But the flip side is, is that I know that because of the, because of the increasing um, focus on CTE and it's been out in the popular press, We've had families say to us, like when our nurses um, have a conversation with families when someone's come in, usually they've taken their own life or it might be a natural death, um, they will say to our nurses, you know, he's it's usually men thus far in our experience. Their behaviour's changed and they played football and we we're worried because he had lots of concussions. And so it's the families knowing that, bringing it to our attention, that means, okay, we can go down this pathway. So I really think public and community awareness is really important for us to be able to get more information in terms of the burden of CTE in the community. I'm always astonished at funerals because people start to put together the life and the changes and any deterioration. I remember a nurse I know was just found you know, a sudden death at home. She was young. She was in her 20s. And it was only at the funeral that said, oh, yes, we used to call a fainting Betty, for example, because every time she saw the side of blood, she'd faint. And then someone said, oh, no, she fainted at a music thing. And it became that then it was only with all these people putting together the story that she wasn't just fainting 
and it was a significant cardiac issue that she, her heart was stopping. And so she was collapsing and just one night she did that and, and there was no one to help her. So I, it always appalls me that at a funeral people put together somebody's life and particularly really important medical information can come out when people are just regaling stories or concerns when it's too late. Yeah, and that is really the dilemma we have with, you know, particularly when we decide what type of level of examination somebody requires when they become subject um, to the coroner's jurisdiction is we can only make decisions based on the best bit of information that we have at that point in time. And with something like CTE, you, you need to have that information or suspected CTE really early so that you can obviously go down that pathway because after a couple of days it's really, really too late. Please briefly just talk to us about um, appearing in court and what that experience is like and what it involves for you. Uh, appearing in court, yeah, I do it a lot um, and particularly because I do, I do the brain examinations and they're, they're often involved in, in cases which um, have significant sort of um, criminal involvement. Um, giving evidence in court, I always get nervous about it and I feel like once I stop getting nervous about it, I should stop, you know, that's time to... A little bit of stress is good for you, I think. But, you know, ultimately, I see myself as someone who's giving evidence for the court. I don't see myself as a witness for either the prosecution or the defence in whichever context I'm appearing. And really it's about I focus on trying to make sure that my evidence is clearly delivered to the court and is not misunderstood or even willfully misinterpreted because people will sometimes try and... uh, try and frame things in a way that actually isn't isn't real. But that's, you know, that's just sometimes people doing their job because they, they want to craft something that sort of suits a narrative that they're, um, that they're after. I think there's this idea that, you know, pathologists are people who don't like other people and kind of want to hide in a corner and, and can't communicate and things. But actually the opposite in terms of a kind of a medical specialty, like being able to engage with people and being able to communicate, I think is really a really important part of doing our job properly. So I just focus on trying to deliver my evidence in the most, I guess, comprehensible way possible. And it's not always straightforward, particularly with neuropathology evidence, because it can be quite complex. So more and more, we're starting to use visual aids in, in court. So, And particularly because now we have the CT images, often we will use those to demonstrate injuries, for example, as opposed to pictures, which, uh, you know, photographs from the autopsy, which jurors find confronting. So there is an increasing use of visual aids in the court. From a court point of view, pictures of the brain, you know, they don't, you know, they don't necessarily mean much to the jury, um, but particularly 3D rendered um, skeletal images we use quite a lot now. And, you know, they're, um, you know, we can rotate them. The, The jurors have iPads and you know, that it's up on a big screen and we can point to things. So it's actually really kind of quite helpful in terms of uh, explaining things to juries. So that has certainly been a, a really useful change over the last couple of years, using anatomy software and things just to explain, um, you know, what's ne- happened to the person and what the difficulties are. So particularly with the use of postmortem imaging now, that has really allowed us to do that. And as I said, some of the 
the autopsy photographs, um, they are necessary in terms of telling the story, but they're not necessarily easily digestible by juries. And, you know, I've been giving evidence on multiple occasions and you just see someone in the jury just go pasty pale and then then you've potentially lost a juror. So as much as the photographs, for example, tell the story as to what's happened to a person, um, if ultimately it means that, that they can't, a jury can't process them and they're not that useful. So it's finding alternative ways to let them understand physically what's happened to the person um, without sometimes the emotional overload um, that sort of leads to that type of vasovagal response, which means that people can't cope with the material. So in terms of the research that's going on, what do you see happening in the next um, four or five years? Because I know the research is, has really taken off in the last few years out of necessity. What do you see happening? And do you see a time when we may be able to predict who is more likely than another to get CTE or chronic brain injury and release of the protein, the destructive proteins and things? Yeah, I, I think you know my exposure to this is really limited to the sort of post-mortem diagnostic setting. And I think from that perspective, it's really just increasing volume of cases and, and understanding the epidemiology of it. But I think what is really important is how that information is going to translate to be able to make this diagnosis in vivo uh, in life because until we get to that stage, so like you say, be able to identify, for example, these proteins and predict um, if you have a high concentration of you know, tau proteins, for example, in your, in your CSF or, or something like a biomarker that lets you identify in life that someone is susceptible to this condition, then I think that will be a significant step forward in terms of how we really understand the epidemiology of the condition. And that in itself is great, um, but prevention is much better. In terms of neurodegenerative conditions, you know, there, there, you know, there are some treatments, but they're not particularly great. And so once we make the diagnosis, it seems like this is a fait accompli and so whilst I think it's an important step in terms of being able to make the diagnosis in life and understand the epidemiology better, the real proper goal, I think, should be prevention because um, in, in terms of preventing people getting to this place in the first instance. And by the time they're starting to have recognisable symptoms, um, as you've indicated, the effects on family and, and everything, they've already done significant damage in terms of family environment and people suffering. So I really think the focus should be a on understanding the condition better, understanding its scope in the community, so that can inform prevention. Because I really think that's really important, and I do think functional studies, um, as opposed to postmortem studies, will lead the way in that respect. Well, I think actually that's been incredibly informative and helpful, and clarifying things that we often see in the media that I think people don't necessarily understand, or realise how big a significant issue head injuries and concussions can be in the future, not even just now. So thank you very much, Dr Linda Isles, for joining us today on Crime Insiders Forensics. Thank you for having me, Catherine. It's been a pleasure. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.